welcome to episode 154 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am here with... John McCamus. Ashley Baker. And Lydia Creech. In today's episode, we will be doing movies we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1967's The Producers. Because uh, we're going to lighten up after like two or three weeks of very heavy kind of dark movies uh but yeah let's go ahead and get into uh movies we saw this week and make it dark again because we're going to talk about the new release from director and writer christopher nolan that is dunkirk um this dunkirk is this very famous episode of of world war ii uh it's you know the the british and french forces were were kind of uh all all barricaded into the this this t- town of Dunkirk and they were you know right on, on the beaches with the German forces kind of moving in and the Germans were uh, you know were, you know Hitler did not allow them to to use their tanks or they were just kind of like let's hold them there we're gonna we're gonna bomb them and, and do other stuff to try, try to get rid of them but you had like 300 400,000 troops on this beach and the story is that you know they had these uh, these ships coming in as well as these civilian ships that came in to uh to rescue many soldiers and so uh nolan's dunkirk follows it takes place in these three different theaters the first one is uh it's finn whitehead among others including harry styles and there are these soldiers on the beach trying to get off the beach the second theater is mark rylance and his two sons who are among the civilian boats coming to the uh, to the in you know, the city of dunkirk to to save british forces and the third theater is with tom hardy uh as he is among uh i think one or two other pilots from the british air force who are trying to stave off the german uh german planes who are trying to bomb the british ships and soldiers on the island uh, but yeah, this is a kind of a very famous story. Uh, there was a movie that came out in 1958 that covered this, and then you had in in Atonement, the movie Atonement. There was a the the long tracking shot uh, sequence with James McAvoy's character in that movie that takes place at Dunkirk. But this is kind of the first focused look at this at this story from history. Uh, all of us saw the movie, um, but yeah, what were your what was your takeaway from this this latest from Christopher Nolan? Did people get to see it in 70 millimeter? Because the big thing about Nolan yeah. is he films on film. And this was the widest 70 millimeter release in the country, bigger even than Hateful Eight. So I was wondering if yeah. other people got a chance to. I, I saw it in uh, in IMAX. I, it was in 70 millimeter. John, Ashley? Ashley and I saw John it in, in 70 millimeter. It's super overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's pretty amazing, but definitely, definitely overwhelming. Ashley and I were kind of making making fun, <laughs> we were making fun of it, but we were having a good time because we saw it opening night here in Knoxville, and we were like, "Oh, seventy millimeter! Like no one's gonna show up for this movie because it's on film, and like people want to see it in IMAX." And the theater was packed. And we were like, they don't even understand. Like, there's a projection in the back. They think it's all digital. So, but it really is, um, man, what what a great movie to be presented in the super, super widescreen on film. Did you mention, Zach, about the kind of nested structure? Like, he's got the three theaters, but each one is also like a different chunk of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's true. Let me mention that. Yeah, because you have the 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 kids on the beach. That's over the course of a week. Then the Tom Hardy character is over the course of like an hour, and then the uh, Tom, Mark Rylance is over the course of a day. And so they're all kind of like the day of the rescue is the Mark Rylance, yeah. and then during the operation is like Tom Hardy and this guy. And they all kind of come yes. together. It all kind of converges at the by the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, now Lydia, did you see it in seventy millimeter as well? Yeah, 70 millimeter IMAX, and I got <laughs> I got really into it. And on the one hand, I'm afraid that just seeing it on a screen that big and that kind of really immersive experience would make any movie really good. <laughs> but on the other end, I also wonder if this movie would work on a much smaller scale. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the questions I was going to ask everybody. I was going to save it till like the end, but we can get into it now. Um, well, let's actually let's save it. Let's save it till the end because I think it's a good like wrap up on on the movie as a whole. Because I'm curious, like, is you know you can think about it while we talk about it, but is this like a movie that I think everybody? I think I got the you know perception that most everybody that everybody here really liked it but is it a movie that you want to revisit um but let's kind of talk about let, let's focus more on the movie i don't know about everybody's feelings about christopher nolan i know that's kind of a polarizing thing uh in many film circles but uh, i i like him i like him to i like him to an extent you know i think he's i think he's very talented he's not a god but he 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 makes very well crafted and are entertaining blockbusters um but i do think that dunkirk is is really his most um, focused. It's funny because he he's still playing with this idea of time that he that he's you know done in Memento and in Inception and even you know in the Dark Knight movies. Uh, but this one, I don't know. I, I I hear a lot of gripes about the kind of structure, but I thought it really worked. Um, but really, my takeaway is is that is a lot of, about the experience. IMAX was just still a very overpowering sensory. Um, you know, you know, you you open with this kind of prologue to the the actual story, and the Finn Whitehead character is walking down the these streets of Dunkirk with other British soldiers, and then these these bullets start to hit, and the bullets don't fly like you're used to, they they really punch like you you feel you you feel them kind of like go from for me it felt like it went down from my head to my gut it just you felt the the impact of those bullets especially when they were hitting the bodies and and soldiers were falling down and that continues for the rest of the movie because you have this pulsing Hans Zimmer score and you have the planes bombing the the soldiers and really is this very claustrophobic um overwhelming experience because you're constant you're 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 watching this story unfold but what's so remarkable about it is that it's it, it never it, it never takes time you know really to let's you know to to dive into exposition which is always something that no one's wanted to, to, to spend way too much time on and this one forgoes all of that and is just put, putting you in this in this story that is just constantly go 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 um and that and i was thinking about the kind of the the claustrophobia in the in the zimmer and the zimmer score for this movie and it, it is i don't know i wouldn't say that hans zimmer's score is a great score per se it's not something that you're going to listen to outside of the movie because that sounds very stressful but for the for the sake of the of the hour and 45 minute runtime it it 
absolutely just kind of bottles everything into this to this pulsing you know rhythmic sense and it and that's just for me it, it just worked because it was so overpowering it was so just i like i just really had never felt anything or i never experienced a movie kind of like it because you know you you never were really given a, a chance to breathe and that kind of worked in line with how the characters felt i think christopher nolan trust us as the audience to immediately grasp the drama of the situation and we don't really have to spend a lot of time on these characters and all their backstories and detail, detail, detail. Um, because it's just a really desperate movie. Uh, I think about the soldier just walking into the ocean uh, while they're waiting for that week to wind down to get it, getting off the beach. Yeah. It's well. It- Oh, one of the, the, the you know the, the, the so thing I, about the story that works so well is that it's all about kind of the small the small victories you know especially with like the Finn Whitehead Harry Styles group of people you know it's 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 like they're always going to different points you know whether it's they're trying to carry that the injured soldier to the to, to get on the boat or they're in that boat in the in the you know the person's firing in there's always like something happening with them and they're and it's always you take the small victory but then you have to move on because there's other stuff happening you don't have time to really relish in it uh and that that works even even with you know the the other the other theaters you know tom hardy they'll they'll take down one german ship but then oh my you know somebody shot out my my you know my gas thing so i don't know how much gas i have left Uh, you know there's always something that it's it's it seems like they clear one hurdle but then there's like six other hurdles in front of it and and nolan does a great job of kind of edge you know working that out so that it's not you know too overwhelming but it it works within the the sense of the story yeah ashley you gave it five stars um this was just i don't know if it was just the screening i mean i thought it was a fantastic movie but it was also kind of like hit me in the gut very personally just at the time that we were watching um i come from a big military family big military background and my brother is currently serving right now. And um, so we were watching the film um, the night before my brother's birthday. And as he's away right now, I knew we were not um, going to get to talk to him at all. And he's uh, he works on aircraft. And when we were kids, we had the models of the exact... World War II Spitfire British aircraft that Tom Hardy and his buddy flies in the film. And so, like, I don't know. Just watching this movie was, like, I was just thinking about my brother the whole time because he's, like, Mm -hmm. really into um, just, like, the spectacle of war machinery, not so much, like, obviously war, but just, like, he loves the machines and the boats and the planes, and the and Chris Nolan just makes such a spectacle of that. He uses the actual, like, those were real planes. That wasn't CG. And, like, yeah. that's amazing to me that he uses as much analog um, material and, like, he, when he has the choice not to use CG, not to use CG, he'll take it. And um, so I appreciate that a lot. 
but as well, like, it was just an incredibly suspenseful movie, and I thought it was really immersive. Um, just the way that, like, he drops you in with these, um, this group of soldiers in the beginning, and, like, you, like, you're in it with these guys. And, like, the clock is ticking for I don't know how long. Like, there's a ticking clock in the yeah. score for I don't know. Score, yeah. yeah. I don't know how long it goes on for. For Maybe an hour and a half. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, <laughs> like, like, a long time. Yeah. And when the silence, when there's finally silence, like, an hour and a half into the movie, it almost hurts. Yeah. And, yeah. and effective. Yeah, so just, like, and that is, like, just such the nature of war. Like you like you were saying, like, you have to na- relish in the small victories because the conflict never stops. And just the concept of time in this film, I thought, really greatly displayed how everything works together, um, or how everything worked together in that, in that sort of... Uh, time period and the way that things worked to make that such an amazing victory getting the fellows off the beach and stuff and I, th- I just thought it was mm-hmm. the most one of the most amazing war movies if you can even call it that I mean just one of the most amazing yeah. films set in it's war a- that I've ever seen yeah it, it's kind of tough because I was thinking about that and I saw a lot of people uh, chatting about that on Twitter you know do you classify this as a war movie because it, I mean it has the elements of of a war movie that you're used to but it's not you know it's not Saving Private Ryan it's not it's not these movies that we kind of associate with not just World War Two, but just war in general or even like something like Paths of Glory it's more of this survival epic you know it, it, it kind of has the, because you never really are there, you're, there's never that point where you, you know one of the things that David Ehrlich mentioned in his review was that you never see the German soldiers you know they don't they don't say Hitler's name they don't you don't see the German soldiers and it, it, it's it's not really it, it, it's like it's kind of weird because it's about World War Two in, in this this you know this moment in British history but it's also just kind of it kind of has this um almost you know it, it could kind of carry over to any any war type setting because it, it really does uh you know kind of take away the 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 logos and the the uh you know the the brands of of the villains and and just kind of strips that all away and and focuses more on just the the survival kind of what you were talking about with these with these soldiers uh and i found that i i, I honestly found that a little bit more interesting than it getting into a lot of this this technical jargon about you know you know how this affects you know the, the how this affects the british front in this war they they have moments of that but they don't really linger on it and i thought that that was something that helped move the movie along and feel like something fresh and unique outside of the the typical warfare yeah and i thought that um i mean not mentioning the germans and not having this sort of hand to hand combat just made it yeah. even more personal and even more effective the way that like I forget the actor's name but I I don't remember his name but the guy who just he's like the main dude out on the beach the fancy guy who, yeah 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 that guy um, he, I always forget that guy's name he like looks out on in the yeah. ocean and he's like man you can almost see it from here 
And that line just like killed me because it's like meaning he, he meaning in England. He he ki- he kills that line. It's he, he delivers it so well. The UK meaning <laughs> like their home, yeah. you know. So yeah. it like makes this sense of urgency like the stakes are so high in this film. Like we got to we got to get this done or we're not going to have a like it's over. Like, the whole yeah, thing is done, yeah. and there's so much assumptions, like, of the audience, like, like we don't need to talk about Germans, we just need to talk about getting this situation yeah. worked out. Um, I want to go back to the to the, to the point uh, we were making earlier in this. Is this a movie that, I mean, we, we all enjoyed it, but is this a movie that you're going to revisit? Because I think, for me, a lot of the the effectiveness of it was just that overpowering the screen size, the, 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 you know, the sound set up at the, at the theater I went to where it just felt like it was just blasting in your face and overpowering you. I mean, is this something that if you were at home on your regular TV with a Blu-ray, you're still going to get something out of it? Is this something that you want to revisit? I'm going to say yes. Um, I'm, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Um, I have all his mm-hmm. movies and um, will rewatch them from time to time because I think he is a very gifted filmmaker. Um, and his use of practical effects just makes me happy. He's just, he's really entrenched in the old ways of filmmaking. And even like films that are, you know, comparative in scope, like Interstellar, you know, where like you're literally in the cosmos and going through wormholes. Like people were saying the same. Um, I think that they're saying now about Dunkirk is like okay this is great IMAX footage of like you know like stars and galaxies and nebulas but like who's gonna buy it to watch on their 20 inch screen at home you know um, and I, I, I just I have a problem with that argument because I think Nolan is a smarter filmmaker and a more talented filmmaker than that I think his movies deserve to be rewatched. Uh, on a more intimate level as opposed to with a lot of people in a big theater. I think he has that capability. So, yeah, I mean, the day that Doug Kirk is on Blu-ray, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to rewatch it. Yeah, I would second that whole thing. Um, I actually was a little distracted by the, not so much by the screen size. I was a little, I was okay with the screen size, but, you know, the sound was just like, we was, were right beside a speaker. We were, we were right beside a speaker, <laughs> it was and painful. it was really loud. And it was a little, um, it was a little distracting. And I probably would have preferred to be just in a more intimate space with the story. And honestly, like Christopher Nolan's writing is so good. Like it's not just like a good-looking movie. Like it is that it is a good looking movie, but it's not just that it's great writing. And that's what I that's the first thing I look for in a movie. And so, yeah, I'll absolutely revisit it for that freaking story, man. (laughs) That freaking story. Lydia? I don't know. (laughs) I want to like Nolan, especially because he is such an advocate for film on film and traditional techniques. But... I find a lot of times when I revisit his movies at home on a smaller screen, just myself, they tend to fall apart and little details become annoying. But I don't know, maybe Dunkirk fits him better because it doesn't have any big speechifying about how love saves galaxies. I don't know. (laughs) 
and they're just still like, or kind of troubling things that pop up in Dark Knight Rises. So maybe, definitely see it in a theater. Maybe at home. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say that. I would, I would say definitely if you if you have any interest of seeing it at all, don't be like, well, I'll catch it on dvd or whatever i would i would go and see it in a theater just to kind of experience it that way so if you're going to see it once you get it that way rather than uh at home but yeah i i I think it'll still be be you know good as a as on a on blu-ray and i'm I'm, i'll buy it and and rewatch it for sure but i still think that there was just this level of i think that it, it added to that claustrophobic overwhelming effect by having that just score that was just you know pushing down on you and it had that giant screen where it seemed like anywhere you looked you were seeing just the chaos i think that that really amped up you know the effectiveness of this movie um and so while i'll i feel like i'll still enjoy it at home i think that there was i'm gonna lose a little bit of that element just from that theater going experience um, but yeah, if you want to check out Dunkirk, it is in theaters now. As we said, we recommend checking it out in the biggest screen possible. Uh, but Lydia, you have a movie you want to talk about. Yes. Uh, Andrew told me about it. And again, next picture show is pairing it with Ghost Story. Uh, the, the Their first film they're doing is Carnival of Souls from 1962. It's directed by a guy named Herc Harvey. And it's, it's amazing. It's, <laughs> it's a little independent film and it opens. Our main character is played by a woman named Candace Hillegoss. And she gets in a car accident with her girlfriends at the very beginning of the film. They drive off a bridge and the car is gone for three hours. And she kind of like crawls out of the mud while they're dragging the river trying to find this car and then she goes and takes a job in like Salt Lake City as an organist and she starts having these hallucinations of a man following her and she kind of has these experiences of all the sound drops out of the world and people can't see her or she can't interact with them and it's somehow connected she thinks with this big abandoned structure on the salt lake it used to be like a dance hall but it the water receded and it's just on the salt beds and it's dangerous and nobody goes there anymore and it's only like 80 something minutes long and it's it's really amazing i think what impressed me the most was it's a real independent film Herc Harvey the director he made industrial films in Kansas for this company called Centron Films and industrial films are just like educational films or for corporations that are only for the people in the corporation and one day he decides to make an actual feature film and it's the only one he ever made (laughs) And he used a lot of the people who worked with him in Centron Films. So a lot of the actors and the crew on it are industrial filmmakers. And these are the only films they made. And it just kind of, it feels like it came out of nowhere. Because Kansas is not really 
a filmmaking center. <laughs> of, it's set in Salt Lake City, and this actual, like, the Carnival of Souls is this real abandoned structure that looks really cool and <laughs> kind of creepy, which I guess he, that's why he decided to shoot there. But it does some, I don't know, the level, it's like really high quality, which it's kind of a shame that he really didn't get to do anything else. It got these creepy, they're not zombie, like the man who follows the main character and pops up sometimes, he wears this dark eyeliner and just doesn't say anything and stalks her around and then she kind of imagines these similarly makeup people kind of dancing in this abandoned dance hall or hallucinations or something and it's a little bit Night of the Living Dead except four years six years before Night of the Living Dead uh, so prefigures a lot of that um I know it's on Filmstruck. I really think people should check it out. What, what, uh, people who are interested, like, what, what, what would be, you know, if you're interested in this, you'd be interested in Carnival of Souls. Any, any way to translate over? I mean, I, I really think Night of the Living Dead or just kind of like campy horror films that are also like that can be a little bit ridiculous, but are also a very creepy atmosphere. And she's also dealing with her, like when she moves to Salt Lake city, her neighbor is really creepy and a real actual threat to her as a human person. <laughs> and it's like, how does she deal with these maybe hallucinations, maybe supernatural stalker and also a really pushy real life problem kind of two pronged and there's like a psychiatrist character that just explains to her what's wrong with her that's not very helpful <laughs> which is like a very 60s horror film kind of thing uh, it's really fun though well, it looks like it's on uh, Amazon Prime as well. So if you have that or Filmstruck, you can check it out. Please check it out. It's really fun and it's a short watch. Like, um, all right, we're gonna take a short break. We'll be back talking the producers in part two after this. Cinematary listeners, this is your favorite Filipino podcaster, Jessica Carr, with an important message during this break in the show. Cinematary would like you to know that we surprisingly do not want your money, and we don't want to place ads in the show at this time. That's not why we do this. We do it because we enjoy each other's company, and we want to bring you our pure, unadulterated opinions on the world of cinema. However, there are a few things you can do to help out the show that we would greatly appreciate. Firstly, leave us a review on iTunes, preferably a positive one, because apparently this will help increase our podcast exposure. Secondly, send us a tweet at Cinematary, or better yet, send us an email at cinematary at yahoo.com so we can hear from you guys for a change. Maybe you can tell us where the money from Fargo is stashed, or maybe you don't think In the Mood for Love is the sexiest movie you've ever seen. Regardless, let us know your thoughts, and we will read them out and respond to them on future episodes. 
Finally, please share the show with friends and members of your family who you think really enjoy listening to us and participating in our film discussions. We also have some cool merchandise that you can check out on the site. So to recap, review, send us your thoughts through Twitter and email, and share with your friends and family. We would truly appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and now back to the show. Part 2 of episode 154 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1967's The Producers. Uh, it was directed and written by Mel Brooks, and it stars Zero Mostel, Gene Wilder, Kenneth Mars, and Dick Sean. Uh, the film follows down-and-out producer Max Bialystok, who was once the toast of Broadway and now trades sexual favors with old ladies for cash con- contributions. Kiss me, kiss me, touch me, hold me. Uh, Max's new accountant, Leo Bloom, uh, offhandedly muses that if Max found investors for a new production that turned into a flop, he could legally keep all the extra money. The duo begins to put together the worst play possible, titled Springtime for Hitler, with a terrible director and hippie freak star. The title Springtime for Hitler was first coined by Brooks as a joke during the press conference for All American in 1962. Shortly afterwards, he also decided to relate this title to a character named Leo Bloom, an homage to Leopold Bloom, protagonist of James Joyce's Ulysses. It was reused by him years later, once he had an idea for, quote, two schnooks on Broadway who set out to produce a flop and swindle the backers. The inspiration was some uh, was some people Brooks met during his early show business days. Benjamin Kutcher, a New York producer who finances plays by sleeping with elderly women, became the basis for Max Bialystok. And the scheme had origins in two theater producers who had a lavish lifestyle while making various unsuccessful plays. When imagining what play, quote, would have people packing and leaving the theater even for before the first act is over, Brooks decided to combine Adolf Hitler and a musical. Uh, in a 2001 inter- August 2001 interview, Brooks said, I was never crazy about Hitler. If you stand on a soapbox and trade rhetoric with a dictator, you never win. That's what you do so well. They seduce people. Or that's what they do so well. They seduce people. But if you, you ridicule them, bring them down with laughter, they can't win. You show how crazy they are. Luckily, that seems outlandish today. Uh, as Brooks sought backers for his 30-page film treatment, bo- both major film studios and independent filmmakers rejected Springtime for Hitler, finding the idea for using Hitler, of using Hitler for comedy outrageous and tasteless. This changed as Brooks's agents arranged him to uh, him to have a meeting with a friend of his, New York producer Sidney Glazer. Glazer laughed so much at Brooks's performance of the script, he accepted the project by saying, quote, We're going to make it. I don't know how, but we're going to make this movie. Glazer budgeted the film at $1 million and sought financers. Half the money was gotten through philanthropist Louis Wolfson, who liked the idea of laughing at a dictator. And the remainder, along with the distribution, was arranged by Joseph E. Levine of Embassy Pictures. Levine uh, only... Levine's 
only condition was to change the title as he felt many distributors would not carry a picture named Springtime for Hitler. Brooks renamed it the producers, considering it ironic as, quote, these guys are anything but producers. As Brooks, quote, couldn't think of any anybody to direct it, he eventually decided to take the task for himself, even though he himself had only directed one play before. Brooks wanted Zero Mostel as Max Bialystok, feeling he was, an, uh, he was an energetic actor who could convey such an egotistical character. Glazer sent the script to Mostel's lawyer, but the attorney hated it and never showed it to the actor. Eventually, Brooks had to send the script through Mostel's wife, Catherine Harkin, while Mostel did not like the prospect of playing, quote, a Jewish producer going to bed with old women on the brink of the grave. His wife liked the script so much, she eventually, she eventually convinced him to accept the role. In contrast against the sad sack approach Nathan Lane took to the character years later on Broadway in the later movie, Mostel allowed all his pent-up hostilities towards all the sources of his professional disappointments to spill over into his performance as Bialystok, making his his a bitter, hate-filled, and often angry interpretation. Gene Wilder met Brooks in 1963 as he performed with his then-girlfriend Anne Bancroft in a stage adaptation of Mother Courage. Wilder complained that the audience was laughing at his serious performance, and Brooks replied that Wilder was, quote, a natural comic, you look like Harpo Mark. And said he would cast him as Leo Bloom once he finished the then title Springtime for Hitler. When production arrived, Peter Sellers accepted an invitation to play Leo Bloom, but he never con- he was he never contacted them again. So Brooks remembered Wilder, who had just made his film debut in Bonnie and Clyde. Dustin Hoffman was originally cast as Liebkin. According to Brooks, late on the night before shooting began, Hoffman begged Brooks to let him out of his commitment to do the role so he could audition for the starring role in The Graduate. Brooks was aware of the film, which co-starred Brooks's now wife, Anne Bancroft, and skeptical that Hoffman would get the role. Uh, So he agreed to let him audition. When Hoffman did win the role of Ben Braddock, uh, Brooks called in Kenneth Mars as Liebkin. Mars was originally invited because Brooks envisioned him as Roger Debris, given he... uh, given he played a gay psychiatrist on Broadway. Uh, Brooks's lack of knowledge of filmmaking had him committing many mistakes during production, requiring the help of assistant director Michael Hertzberg. Being both inexperienced and insecure, Brooks start, started to have tantrums and behave angrily. He got impatient with the slow development compared to how quick television production was, temporarily banned Glazier from the set, berated a visiting reporter from the New York Times, and had clashes with cinematographer John Coffey and main actor Zira Mostel. Z- Mostel also had a troublesome behavior caused by a recent leg injury received in a bus accident, which made his con- Contract feature a clause dismissing Mostel from any work after 5.30 p.m. Given the fact that the leg injury got worse in humid weather, the last scene at the Lincoln Center's fountain had Mostel throwing a fit and giving up on production. Glazer had to leave a dentist appointment and rush to the set where Mostel and Brooks were arguing, and once the producer managed to calm them down, the resulting scene had to be shot all night long. According to Brooks, after the film was completed, embassy executives refused to release it as it as it being as it was being in quote bad taste. The film premiered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on November 22, 1967, and it was a disaster. Uh, the studio considered shelving it. However, Peter Sellers saw the film privately and placed an advertisement in Variety in support of the film's wider release. Sellers was familiar with the film because, you know, according to Brooks, he had accepted the role of Bloom and never heard from again. Uh, the film allegedly was banned in Germany. I can't think of why. Uh, in, I thought this, this, was, this, this was kind of a funny fact. I found this. Uh, in Sweden, 
The film, the the title literally translates to as springtime for Hitler. So as a result, all but two of Mel Brooks's movies in Swedish have been given similar titles. They include uh, for the Twelve Chairs, springtime for mother-in-law; for Blazing Saddles, springtime for the sheriff; for Young Frankenstein, springtime for Frankenstein; for Silent Movie, springtime for the silent movies; for High Anxiety, springtime for the lunatics; for History of the World Part One, springtime for world history; for Spaceballs, springtime for space and for life stinks springtime for the slum which i loved all of those they should like they should put out a box set with all of those names that's, that's not real that that's can't be crazy. real uh Renata Adler in the New York Times said the producers, which opened today at the Fine Arts Theater, is a violently mixed bag. Some of it is shoddy and gross and cruel. The rest is funny in an entirely unexpected way. Uh, when talking about Mistel, she said he was overacting grotesquely under the direction of Mel Brooks and that in that role, he was as gross and unfunny as only an enormous comedian bearing down too hard on some frail, tasteless routines can be. As for Wilder, she called him wonderful, uh, despite being forced to be as loud and as fast as Mostel and going through long, infinitely variegated riffs and arpeggios of neuroticism and playing his part as though he were Dustin Hoffman being played by Danny Kaye. Uh, she also puts the movie into the bigger context of contemporary comedy. Uh, it said it had the same episodic review quality in the way it is not building laughter and stringing it together skit after skit, some some vile, some boffo. Her, her conclusion, though, is that the producers is less delicate than Lenny Bruce, less funny than Dr. Strangelove, but more much funnier than The Loved One or What's New Pussycat. Uh, Pauline Kale said that it was amateur... Amateurishly crude, uh, and Ebert re- re- uh, reviewed the film in 2000, saying. Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder have a scene in the producers where they roll on the floor so ferociously we expect them to chew on one another. Mostel is so manic and barbarian. Wilder is so panic and hysterical. You wonder why Spit didn't get in on the camera lens. The whole movie is pitched at the, that level of frenzied desperation. And one of the many joys of watching it is t- to see how the actors are able to control timing and nuance even while screaming. This is one of the funniest movies ever made. To see it now is to understand that. To see it for the first time in 1968 when I did was to witness audacity so liberating that not even there's something about Mary rivals it. The movie was like a bomb going off inside the audience's sense of propriety. There is such rapacity in in its heroes, such gleeful fraud, such greed, such lust, such a willingness to compromise every principle that we cave in and go along. All right. um, On that note... Uh, let's get into uh, let's get into a, a discussion on on the producers. Um, how many people here have seen a Mel Brooks film before this? Yeah, any Mel um, Brooks? I don't, Just any Mel Brooks? I don't know. Yeah, probably. Spaceballs and Young Frankenstein. Oh yeah, I saw Spaceballs okay. like forever ago. It's been a long time. Yeah. I think I've seen most of them. Blazing Saddles, Spaceballs. Uh, I watched History of the World Part 1 right before Producers, uh, Young Frankenstein. Uh, okay. So you, you at least you, you at least have a familiar, familiarity with him. Um, <laughs> well, so th- so this is his first film. What what was kind of like what was your takeaway with the producers? Um, I personally I think it kind of has it, it it shares a lot of the commonalities with his with his other with his other movies, but you can kind of feel the the uh the immaturity in the directing the 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 kind you know it, it feels like a first movie um at least in terms of his directing style but at the same time his his jo- the jokes still he still is able to kind of get the jokes off in that rapid pace that reminds you of uh 
you know, something like a Marx Brothers comedy like Duck Soup, which we watched earlier. Uh, but what did you guys think? Yeah, I think uh, in comparison to his other films, I found the jokes kind of came slower or he wasn't as sure with them because a lot of them, it's like a really, really, really fast mix of like wordplay or visual gags or really low humor. And I felt like for a lot of the producers, it was this idea is the joke. Like it's funny that uh, Zero is sleeping with all these old women and that went on for the entire credit sequence. And it wasn't necessarily jokes within that scenario. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of... He he definitely is is kind of building that that whole that whole sequence works I, I guess with like the editing because it's like something happens and it cuts into part of like the title sequences and then it, and then it continues that the, the sequence on that scene is kind of crazy though because from the beginning of the movie that it all takes place in that space for like 25 30 minutes it's like you you, you don't really think about it but it, it that that whole like the whole first like 25 30 minutes of the movie are all within that opening scene uh but ashley you were gonna say something yeah i was just gonna say i feel like everything in this movie just kind of got run into the ground really hard like all the jokes and everything just like if they were really weak to begin with and then they just kept driving them in like please work please be funny and it just really wasn't at all well what did you find uh about like weak about the jokes I just didn't think it was funny. Like, why weren't they working? Like, why weren't they working? I just thought it was poor. Was it offensive or just, like, boring? Well, yeah, there was a lot of offensive stuff in this film. But that's... I don't know. I just... I didn't really... uh, There was that. Yeah. (laughs) Plenty of that. Okay. Um, John? Yeah, I just thought... um, I mean, seeing other Mel Brooks's films... uh, Just two of them. I know he's done a lot. But knowing kind of what what he has built and then seeing this um like you said zach you can tell it it is a first film there's a lot of continuity stuff a lot of editing that's um kind of cringeworthy editing but um i don't know i the jokes were they, they were like kind of chuckle worthy to me but um, I just I just kind of lost interest because the story to me seemed like I knew where it was going the whole time. Like they're gonna build up this big thing and like they're gonna fake it's gonna work, but you know you know the audience like it's not gonna work and they're gonna get caught and like and so I just kind of um, went along with it and um, watched it for you know however long I could. I think. What really puts me off, and, and Zach, you read it in in a review just now, that it's so loud. Like, they scream so much that it's mm-hmm. it, it feels abrasive to me. And um, I just, I couldn't get in the cinematic world where people just scream when talking I don't know. I just yeah. There was a lot of screaming and like grabbing and sweating. I feel like people were like <laughs> screaming so yeah. much that they were sweating. Probably, you know? probably so many takes after takes of just screaming. They're yeah. probably all sweating. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's uh, I don't rate movies on Letterbox or anything. But if I did, it'd probably be like two and a half, three maybe. I just think it's a pretty average film. Um, 
the jokes land sometimes, but they're not they're not very strong and, and they don't always land for each audience member. So depending kind of what your what your comedy style is, you may not relate to the the jokes as much. Yeah, I I, I hear your point about the kind of the the abrasiveness but I, I feel like that's also like that's kind of what he's going for uh, ebert hits it pretty well when he's talking about he's describing the performances he you know he says that zero mostel is is manic and barbarian and, and and wilder's panic and hysterical i think that you know that brooks crafts these characters to be abrasive and over the top and you know in your face screaming because you there's just like the, that's just kind of their presence on screen and and I, I think that both of those actors you know are exceptional at that because Mostel is just so big he he's he's yeah he's just bumbling around he you know he's constantly he's just rolling around the set especially in that opening sequence when it when he really meets Gene Wilder's character Leo Bloom he's just kind of rolling around the set in 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 opening stuff and in bumping into stuff and and it just that that you know giant presence adds to kind of his comedic um to, to just kind of him as this comedy you know thing on the screen and then for wilder he he's just so he's so hysterical you he, he just goes into these just you know rages where he's you know you have the you have the the very famous line where he's where uh, zero mostel throws the water on him and he's going i'm hysterical i'm wet and i'm hysterical and i think that that's just like the 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 over the top of it is is the point because it's both you just have these absurd crazy uh figures that you're not really you're not you of course you're not supposed to like sympathize or or, or you know want to be them because they're doing you know they're doing bad things and they're in their you know bad people but they're entertaining people because they're just so they're they're, they're so cartoonish there's just this cartoonish quality to them and i was thinking a lot about kind of our discussion that we had when we talked about duck soup a, a couple weeks back and uh you know mel brooks's characters and, and the marx brothers are very similar because they they do they have this cartoonish quality to them and, and, and when you think of groucho and duck soup yeah he's not a character that you latch on to going yeah this is the guy you know i relate to this person i want to i want to follow this person you just want to follow him because he's so entertaining he's so just just kind of absurd uh and I think that Mel Brooks kind of carries that over into into his own work. I think that your point about you're not necessarily supposed to like or sympathize with these people, because you mentioned in your intro that Nathan Lane plays that character like a little bit more pathetically or yeah he plays him in the and if, if you've seen the uh the 2005 version of the producer that's based on the play maybe you're supposed to have more he's, he's a very different don't performance think you are <laughs> at, at all because no 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 these are characters uh the the producers that have overestimated or un overestimated i guess the audience and how disgusted they were going to be about using Hitler to offend. And like there are a lot of coincidences that make it ridiculous, but their core idea was actually a pretty nasty, shocking thing to do, even without the comedy aspect. So... Well, I guess I guess is that that's a, that's kind of what we can shift into next is what uh, 
what was your what was your feelings about um, the the plot line around the the Hitler musical and kind of how Brooks, um, you know, did, did you feel like Brooks was properly satirizing the Nazis and Adolf Hitler? Did you feel like it was out of place and didn't work? It's really hard to answer that now in 2017. Uh, when we've seen, like, when we've seen so many different versions of Hitler being mocked on screen and on the internet and various like cartoons, and so I can't imagine how p- people in seventy-two, sixty-seven, sit close, <laughs> not close at all. Yeah. Well, you got to figure they were like the the crowd at, at the beginning of the springtime for Hitler number where they're just like mouths agape staring at the what's uh, going on. I like the one guy who bursts into applause and the whole audience turns on him. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, like as a depiction of Hitler, that's ridiculous. I Aside from the inherent shock value of 67, like, I don't know if it still feels as powerful today. Yeah, I just um, didn't really, like, it felt like an aside. The actual play, the actual performance kind of felt like it took the back seat to everything else that was happening. Like, you know, they watched the first, you know, the first number, and then they go into the bar and, like, Whatever, and I wasn't so much concerned about like how Hitler was being satirized. Like I knew he was going to be satirized. Like I knew somehow the audience was going to be brought around in favor of the play. And so like by the time it came around, like I was like, okay, so this is how they're doing it, and it was fine. And it wasn't so much like an intriguing thing. It was just a thing. Yeah. So so you were more. There were, it didn't offend you as much. It was just more. It, it offended you. You were like it, in the term, in the way of it just wasn't funny. <laughs> it wasn't like this is incredibly offensive. It was more. I'm not laughing at this. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't offended by that at all. Yeah, it just was. It just didn't. It didn't make me laugh. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. John, anything? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Lydia on that one. I think it's, um, I don't know, like, yeah, it's it's just another another Hitler uh, satire. And um, I certainly don't think it's one of the strongest. I mean, there there have been, oh man, so many that have that have really knocked it out of the park with like Chaplin's Great Dictator and. Um, Ernst Lubitsch, To Be or Not To Be, are two of my favorite satires of all time. And they just, they they really kind of hone that skill of of mocking while being intelligent at the same time and making a point um, and trying to, trying to really, um, I don't know, just, just educate the audience while also showing how ridiculous it is is a really really fine line and Mel Brooks you can see that he's kind like he's he's reaching like he's on a ladder and he's on like the top two rungs and his little arms are out and they're flailing and he's like trying to trying to get there and he's almost there but I think um, it falls just a little bit short of of how good it could have been 
um, and it it just ultimately felt flat to me. So I, I yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat as Ashley. It's like you know, it's it's there, and like we know it's going to be a satire because this is a studio movie, and like no studio movie in American history is going to like approve a pro fascist script. So um, I don't know. I just I was kind of expecting it, and and it happened, and then it didn't, and then it was over, and then you know. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think your point about the the two satires are mentioning mentioned having a point is really important. I mean, for any satire to work, it it just can't be this vague. This is ridiculous, and therefore it's funny to count as a satire. And I mean, what do you think the point? Brooks was going for was I mean other than just shocking people in 67 <laughs> I don't know I think it's just a, a general mockery it's not not so much satire well the thing is I don't think I mean from Mel Brooks point of view sure like it's supposed to be a satire in order to like intrigue the audience but like in the story space it wasn't meant to be a satire. Right. This is just a bumbling idiot who fell into this play, you know? So on that level, like, there is no point. It's just an idiot playing Hitler. And so, like, for Mel, like, for Mel Brooks, yeah, it's supposed to, like, technically satirize Hitler. And for the audience, it's like, oh, it's hit funny, like, you know, s- satire of Hitler. But they're just, like, making fun of him. It's like John said, it's just mockery. There's not really a point. Zach, what I do you think, think? I think it's 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 tough because you, you want you yeah I think Lydia's right. You want with satire, it needs to to kind of have an a, an end goal, and you want to have a purpose behind why you are satirizing or mocking this 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 figure. Um, I think that that Brooks is I guess his is kind of his his purpose behind it is is kind of what he said in his quote he want you know he he sees uh these larger than life dictatorial figures as you know they they gain their power by by uh you know by telling people what they want to hear and and in kind of rallying the you know the cause that way and whenever you're able to make fun of them and and kind of poke at their whether it's their insecurities or their appearances or their demeanor or just anything and kind of bring it, it helps to bring them down a notch um you know that's i think that that's kind of what he's trying to to accomplish and just kind of in a sense of not just what he's showing hitler on you know not just how he's showing hitler on on the stage in the play but just kind of this 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 ideology in general you also have to look at the the leadkin character the kenneth mars character who is, is is super pro uh, Nazis? You know, he, he he of course tries to you know derail the whole play when he figures out that that they're just kind of mocking at Hitler and not taking the Führer seriously. Uh, but uh, and, and so I think that his it, it's more just he's he's mocking this and satirizing this this sense of. Um, this sense of the, the of one one group or one people knowing how to uh, how to you know how to, how to run something 
you know, better than everybody else. And, and, and just, you know, I, I don't think it's there's there there is that Nazi element to it. But I think it's all it's also he's kind of just taking this wider approach to just mocking these these people who use power to to control large uh, large quantities of people and the effects that it has on those people. Well, does it make does satire or comedy like this make like actually dealing with Hitler any easier <laughs> for people? Because I mean, if you step back and actually think we watched uh, Night and Fog in our documentary series, and it's like what Hitler did is incomprehensible, <laughs> horrifying. And so I guess my question is, is this kind of comedy, especially when it came out only a couple decades after the end of the war, it, it can it be a healing thing or helpful at all? Really reconciling this idea of Hitler the monster. I, I don't I don't think it's supposed to comedy is not a tool to solve issues. It's never it's never supposed to be something that's gonna like fix anything or heal anything or I think that the the L, the, what the the great thing about comedy is that it can kind of it's more it can give you a breath. It's like you can it allows you to kind of take a breath with all of this, you know, with everything that's happening. Um it was funny. I uh, yesterday I was uh, I was texting with Lydia. We were talking about this this topic, and we were also I was I was sharing with her this uh, this one post um, from my work uh, on something political. I forgot what specifically because it's it's hard to narrow down. But I was I was just ta- it was the Boy Scouts speech by uh, by uh, El Presidente and. Um, I was just kind of I wanted to show like the like just the the thread of comments that for me is in my job I have to go through and deal with on a daily basis and how just like exhausting it can that can be Um, and for me one of the things I think you know when I see a lot of the parody and and satire and comedy coming out around um, this political landscape some of it, some of it is 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 funny, and it's it, it makes me laugh. But um, sometimes some of the stuff they go for, it just doesn't work because it, it kind of becomes this, um, just kind of becomes you know almost added to the noise that's already happening with a lot of the stuff that's that's taking place. And so I think that that you know it can it can almost become exhausting in its own sense. Um, now going back to the producers, I think that you know it's it's a little bit of a different you know it's a, it's a different case because this like you said Lydia this came out a couple decades after World War II and all in all of that stuff that happened you know with the Holocaust and etc. Um, and so it's not like happening at the same moment. Um, but I but I think that it you know it, it's not it, it's not solving anything with what happened it's not supposed to you know i don't know make it better i don't feel like is the is the is the, is the right term but it's not it's not supposed to 
to you know change anything that that stuff happened and it's important and it, it's something that we 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 all you know that that everybody carries especially mel brooks mel brooks fought in world war ii he he and, and he is jewish yeah he 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 he's close to a lot of the issues that he knows are important related to hitler and so i think that his goal is overall is just to kind of allow some sort of breath some sort of momentary break from the the you know overwhelming sense of dread or fear or sadness that is associated with this subject and i think that that's fine like like i think as human beings we need that to survive to some extent does that does that all come together make sense i um i agree on this particular instance that you know the comedy's not meant to solve anything I want to talk about the blatant sexism in this movie and the okay. the homophobic jokes the homophobia yeah that's what I want to talk about what do okay. you guys well, think about a, that uh, no that's fine give, uh, give, me, give me give us an example of the uh, the sexism just for the sake of man sits down grabs a stack of money of. puts it in pocket says i'm going to buy me a new toy cut to woman specifically pan in on breasts in which woman you know in long extended scene where woman prances around room and camera is on her butt the whole time and she you know does all sorts of amazing things like cutting the end of a cigar off and the guy says what does he say oh so smart or something like that i forget but as if like oh it comes as if he's saying like oh it comes with batteries too like can we talk can we talk about that i mean mel brooks was pretty i guess progressive or smart about how he was transgressive on some aspects like dealing with the persecution that jewish people faced because like you said, Zach, that's pretty close to him as a person. And I just, he fall, yeah, he falls down on other fronts, specifically, I guess, dealing with women. And to me, a lot of the stuff, like with the directors, is pretty. Almost, well, he doesn't have a real good track character, track record of gay or gay typed characters, if, but. Eh, he can't do everything. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's a cop out. Well, I I think it's just more. I will say the the, the part where where he where he where they say uh, go to work and she starts dancing does pay off when at the at the after the play and they come back and they say just go and do work and she starts dancing after they've you know had that whole like like shut down of the whole thing is kind of entertaining that that bit does work for that sake um, but yeah I, I I mean I don't know it's 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 one of those things where. Yeah, it's 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 um it's questionable and it it it's more it doesn't translate uh to a twenty seventeen audience. Um I think especially the the jokes with the gay characters doesn't necessarily translate very well to to today and, and Mel Brooks has has had um gay characters uh, you know in his movies before you have the the uh the whole musical number in uh in blazing saddles um as well and it i don't know it, it 
it's not that he it's not that he treats them in a in a deterrent or harmful sense it's more it's more just a kind of dated view what was okay of, 50 years ago yeah <laughs> exactly really. yeah so it's not it's so i don't find but with the gay characters i don't find that the, like he treats them poorly it's just he treats them in a view that's very dated today and so i kind of i give it a little bit of a of a break just because i'm like you know there's only it's 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 dated and and wrong but there's only so much with a movie from 1967 you can you can do well i guess the question is like who's the butt of the joke um and a lot of times gay characters are the butt of the joke or we're meant to laugh at them and in regards to the woman character Ashley in this film I I mean it's not totally a defense of it but I feel like Gene Wilder and Zero are the butt of the joke like you said Zach it pays off in a really funny way that's pretty amusing so yes they're treating her sexistly (laughs) but in the end it kind of comes back on them well, so, especially like Zero Mostel's character, he's kind of a gross, char- you know, gross pig of a of a person anyway, and so of course he's gonna, of course he's gonna treat the 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 secretary that way. You know, it, it makes sense. Um, I don't know if that's that's means it's right, but it, I mean that's just that. Well, that, I don't feel in, like the movie rewards the, him for it. Yeah. Well, I'm not like wholly concerned with who's the butt of the joke. It's just like. A woman is being portrayed as literally an object, like blatantly as an object, and also like, also kind of assumed to be a prostitute, maybe, because she's being paid to be here, and he walks in after the whole thing has collapsed in their faces and whatever, and she strips off her clothes and says, we make love? And also the thing where she doesn't speak English is is another thing we could talk about but we probably don't have time i don't know i i think like (laughs) i think i don't know i just i think that just goes back to um that's that's just that's like the construction of the like that's just the construction of the gag and it it, i don't know i it's uh, i it's just one of those again it's 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 wrong and it maybe is dated. It's not totally defensible. It's not, not totally defensible, but it's also, um, I think again, I think Lydia made a good point that it's not like while Brooks crafts this that the 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 secretary character as this object, he also doesn't he also doesn't make her the butt of the joke. The the you know Zero Mostel's character and Gene Wilder's character are the butt of the joke, and I think that's that that at least alleviates the sense of her just being there to be an object um, because it, it's saying that she's there to be an object as part of this joke. Now, again, now maybe she shouldn't be an object just to be a joke, but I don't know. It's a, it's a you know, it's, it, that's just, that's, that's going to be a comedy. You're going to have, it's, it's, it's just one of those things where you're going to have characters who are there on for the, for the sake of, of, of the laugh. Um, so I don't know. It's I'm, 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 it's 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 tough to defend it, but at the same time, I understand why he he did what he did, or why he used her in the way that he did. Well, I mean, I I don't think it's really able to be defended. I was just kind of like like looking for what you guys thought about it. 
I don't think it's, like, excusable at all. Yeah. And it's the same thing with, like, the homophobic stuff. Like, even, like, I don't think it's even, like, excusable for the time. Like, I understand whatever, it's 19, whatever, but still, you know. I don't it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to compare like that character um with the the I forgot her name in the in duck soup but the the one the 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 like like the princess the queen character that is there with Groucho's the money lady Yeah 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 because she kind of like she's one also that grout they're always he's he's making jokes at her (laughs) she is the butt of the joke but that one's that but that that one's an interesting case because the producers doesn't have the rapid fire of duck soup and so in that case like she's the butt of the joke but also he's the butt of the joke and somebody else is the butt of the like there's so many jokes happening all at once that it's tough to keep up with who's who like who specifically is the butt of the joke because it seems like everybody's the butt of the joke uh, but the producers has like a different it's not as rapid fire moving as quickly um and i think mel like alleviates that in his later films uh especially like young frankenstein <laughs> and and he gets madeline Kahn later and she she's amazing mad yeah madeline Kahn is amazing because i think that she plays uh she plays kind of similar thinly uh drawn female characters but she's so funny and she's so good that she's able like she's able to control that and and make the make the characters much much more like you yeah you think of her in like young frankenstein or history of the world part one like she's able to she's just like i think that if you had madeline khan and the producers we would we wouldn't that this wouldn't really as be as much of a discussion maybe it would but she'd be really good in it she's fantastic um any any closing thoughts on the movie before we wrap up any last uh ditch this is how i feel i think it's okay i kind of uh when it ended i was like wait was that supposed to be a flop oh the movie is it still a relevant movie? Like, no, I just, I just think it's, uh, it's an okay comedy, and um, if you're interested in the the filmography of Mel Brooks and haven't seen it, check it out. But uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but don't expect you... too much. Did Mel Brooks rip off his investors and then become a millionaire and disappear from the world of filmmaking <laughs> in a crazy get-rich scheme? I don't know. I was. I think it's still a pretty relevant piece of comedy filmmaking, if just for taking in context when it came out and how shocking that was and kind of what it has been able to spawn in terms of just Nazi satire and people making really offensive or transgressive jokes. I wouldn't say this is an instance of the joke being done wrong or harmfully to anyone other than Hitler and like his representation. So maybe it's not really funny in 2017, but it's not harmful. And I think it's kind of important, like, as a comedy making fun of Hitler, like, this is how it can be done right and not weird offending. <laughs> you're, you're punching Hitler and you're not making a butt 
the Holocaust the butt of the joke, which is Very rock. Important. Gonna throw that out there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree um, with John's point. I think that if you're interested in Mel Brooks, you definitely have to check out this producers. Um, I, I, I think I but and then I also agree with you, Lydia. I think that it, it uh, it's still relevant today. I think that, that you can still um, in terms of it's it's the characters and their greediness and their um, just complete lack of of. Uh, lack of comp you know of, of of awareness to to others is 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 something relevant today um and it's also i think that it it, it, it it's helped by just the the performances by zero mustel and gene wilder gene wilder is just so talented and he and, and he does kind of have this uh this Marx brother quality, uh, Mel Brooks said that he looked like Harpo. Um, but just the, the, the unbridled neuroticism that he just unleashes at, at, at times is, is, is just, <laughs> just entertaining just because it's so it's again, it's so over the top and it's so, uh, it's just so pontificated. It's just, you know, he, he just goes on and on and it, it's, it's, it sometimes feels like, like, like this, like this baby crying, you don't know how to shut it up. You know how to make it like stop. You're, he just starts going, and um, that abrasiveness is, is is again. I think that is kind of key because these characters are just so so big and cartoonish and 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 lively, and um, it's 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 it's. I, I agree that it's it's not uh, Brooks's best work. I think that um, it's it's still very funny. It has a lot of great jokes in it. But I, I think that the, the joke density is a lot more impressive in something like Blazing Saddles or uh, Young Frankenstein, especially. Um, but I still think it's something that I would still recommend it to people. I think it's still a, a very funny movie that um, has a fantastic musical number in it. <laughs> it's, springtime for Hitler is a great, like, it's like a fantastic musical number. Um but all right uh, i guess that'll wrap up this episode of cinematary um you can find us on cinematary.com you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on twitter at handle at cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode next week speaking of musicals we're gonna get very musical with 1964's the umbrellas of cherbourg gonna get very colorful gonna get very melancholy gonna get all nice and like but it's like a warm sad it's like i'm sad but everybody's gonna it's everybody's in in a fine place yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's okay i love it it's fan i'm pretty i'm super excited to talk about that um but yeah we'll be talking about that next week and make sure to go to the cinematary website um jessica carr has a review of uh on amirpour's the bad batch which is it's live now and was liked on twitter by the director which i thought was really cool she said nice things about her so it's not embarrassing we that's attacked true. the director and yeah hated this movie that's true <laughs> <laughs> and then also Andrew mentioned it last week, but we have a, his review of the little hours, um, which he greatly enjoyed. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess thank you guys for listening and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.